So, um, you know, sometimes, I don't know if I share this with you all often, I share it with the 930 a lot. Um, sometimes I'm not sure if what's about to happen is actually a sermon or if maybe it's like a lesson or maybe it's a Bible study. To be honest with you, sometimes I have no idea. Um, I send out uh, what I'm working on on Saturday to the pastoral staff and people on the staff and uh, Sabrina read it and I asked her, I said, hey, is that a sermon? And she said, the gospel is proclaimed. Yes, Chad, it's a sermon. And I mean, I'm inclined to trust her. Um, I just don't know. Um, It's informative. I can at least say that. (laughs) And I think it's gonna set us up well for the weeks to come. So, fair warning. Good luck (laughs) to all of us. Uh, For the past four weeks, uh, we've been looking at who we are in light of who God is and what God's word says about us. And we've been making the case that, that we are known, that we are loved, and that we are worth dying for, not because we've done something to deserve God's love, not because we are so good that that's made us worth dying for, but for some reason, even in our brokenness, we shared a couple weeks ago, Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you are known, you are loved, and you are worth dying for simply because God says you are. And the truth is that Jesus didn't die and rise so that we could go on living the rest of our lives believing lies and partial truths. He didn't die and rise so that we would live enslaved to sin and shame for the rest of this life. He lived and died and rose so that we may be free from all that, so that we may have and live the fullest kind of life, even now. The scriptures are telling us about a life that's lived in anticipation of the kind of life that we're gonna live forever. And that's actually what we're gonna talk about in the final four weeks of this 12-week series. The question we need to wrestle with now as we move on from the first four weeks, do we believe all this is true? Do we trust him? Do we accept what we've discovered about ourselves as the truth and will we allow that truth to be the foundation of our identity? Will what God says about us serve as the definition of who we are? Or like the rest of the world, are we just gonna keep looking for an identity in all the flawed and broken places? Whether that's what the world around us says about us or even if it's what we hear deep inside. So for the next four weeks, we're gonna shift. We're gonna shift from who we are, known, loved, and worth dying for. For the next four weeks, building now on top of that foundation we have poured, we're gonna search God's word for the truth about what we are and why we are. And to do that, as with everything, if we wanna understand anything, where do we need to go? Say it out loud, where do we need to go? Whatever you just said, one of you said back to the beginning, one of you said Genesis one, you were right, here we go. Let me go all the way back to Genesis one. And there's a million interesting things about Genesis one. But one of those interesting things is how this poem that starts off God's word, how the poem describes the way in which God creates. 
The first chapter of the Bible uses a couple different words. It'll use the word create in Hebrew. It'll use that word five different times, but only in three verses. It'll use that word in verse one, and then we won't see the word create again until verse 21, and then one last time in verse 27. The text also uses another less fantastic word to describe the work that God is doing. It'll say God made. That word is used a number of times. It's used in verse seven and verse 16, verse 25, 26, 31. There's gonna be a test. You need to remember all this. <laughs> but even more than those two words, there's another word that's used multiple times in almost half of the verses in Genesis 1. And it's that God spoke. That's how God did this. See, Genesis 1 is telling us that not only that God is the creator of all things, the organizer of the chaos, he's the boundary setter, but that even as he creates and the way he creates, he's forming a relationship with his creation. There's a scholar named Walter Brueggemann. He wrote a commentary on Genesis 1. It's amazing. He says this. He says, it's by God's speech that the relationship with his creation is determined. And then he quotes Romans 4 and 2 Peter 3 when he says, God calls the world into being. By God's speech, that which did not exist comes into being. The way of God with his world is the way of language. God's, God speaks something new that never was before. So without reading all of Genesis 1, let me just show you why I think this is important in our search for what's true about me and about you. Starting in verse three, God said, let there be light, and there was light. In verse nine, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and yeah, that's a lot to say again, right? So that's why the Bible just says, and it was so. <laughs> so um, sum it up. Verse 11, then God said, let the land produce vegetation. That's interesting. Let the land be a part of the creation process. Let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees and bear fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. Okay, so there's something that grammar nerds will notice. As God speaks into the order he's creating, he calls all of these things by their name, but he speaks about them in the third person. Like he doesn't say, hey light, you should appear. He says, let there be light. He doesn't say, hey land, how you doing? You should produce some vegetation. He says, let the land produce. There's no personal pronouns, no direct speech, not yet. <laughs> It's almost as if so far there's, a, there's like a little bit of distance between the creator and his creation. So God speaks. As Beth pointed out, creation seems to listen and obey as it's being formed. And then every time this happens, at the end of the day, God says, it's good. Y'all, in this poem, God is not bringing things into existence through force. There is no struggle. And God doesn't say, there must be. God says, let there be. There's a directed freedom, almost a sense of permissiveness. 
This is not restriction, it's permission. Let there be. It's a very important phrase. I want you to remember that for a little bit later. But all of that brings us to what really is the pinnacle, the high point of the poem. It's the sixth day. We're about halfway through the sixth day. The environment is all set. It's teeming with life. Everything that's needed to provide either food or shelter, a home for, for what? <laughs> and for who, right? For, for us. So Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, says this. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And don't get caught up in the plural. I know you all heard it say, let us make mankind in our image. Uh, if you wanna wrestle with that, you need to come to a Bible study, okay? Uh, don't, get, <laughs> don't get distracted by that because the very next verse says, makes it really clear. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, grammarians, what just happened? It's a personal pronoun. The first personal pronouns. All of a sudden in verse 28, God is not speaking about created things. Now he's speaking to them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and listen, subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was, oh, Bible scholars. It was not good, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Okay, so like I said, a million interesting things about this creation poem, we only have time to wrestle with one big idea today. And simply put, what does it mean to bear the image of God? We don't know everything that it means. We probably can't comprehend everything that it means. But for the next couple weeks, I just wanna make the case that at least two things can help us understand what it means to be an image bearer. One of those things is the work we do in the world the role that we serve in the midst of creation. I believe that both the work we do, and by work, I, I don't mean like a job, right? From children to students to retired adults, whatever productive activity you're putting into the world, the work we do, both the work we do and a particular capacity for communication as we do that work. I'm convinced that those two things can help us understand not only who we are, but what it means to bear God's image, and they can help us understand what we are and why we're here. So back really quick to Walter Brueggemann. Um, he has a lot to say about Genesis 1, and a very important thing he has to say is this. He says, we often force Genesis 1 to be something it's not. Genesis 1 is not mythology, y'all, it's not a myth. Genesis 1 is also not science. <laughs> and we so often and so quickly assume that it's one or the other. He says that the poem in Genesis 1 is neither mythology, it's neither science, and to make it either is to rob the text of its power, forcing the scriptures to answer questions they didn't intend to answer. 
He says it like this, let me read this to you. He says, we don't have a word to describe what Genesis 1 has to say about creation. It's neither mythological nor scientific. So it's probably best to just use the word covenant. It's covenantal. And that word is important because it affirms that the creator and the creation have something to do with each other and that neither can be understood apart from the other. And he says this leads to two important theological points. First, that the creator has a purpose and a will for creation. This is not random. This is not purposeless. And we are not spiraling off into the void. (laughs) There is meaning and purpose. And the second point is that the creation, which he points out, exists only to fulfill the purpose of the creator. The creation is given freedom to respond to the creator in various ways. And he says this, I'll stop reading, but he says, those two theological affirmations, they set up the dramatic tension of the rest of scripture. The faithful, anguished, respectful purpose of the creator and creation's mixed response, both obedience and resistance. And y'all, we know this is true. Creation, we, we respond to the creator with both obedience and resistance. And we're gonna need to wrestle with the origins of that part of the story. We're gonna do that over the next couple weeks. But for now, it's enough to know that's the reality in which we live. In this life, I don't know about you, in this life, I'm a hot mess. I'm a mixed bag. Sometimes I'm obedient, sometimes I'm resistant. Am I the only one? See, they were a little more upfront with that. At 9.30, it was kind of like, no, no. (laughs) Am I the only one who's obedient and resistant? No. Okay, so how does all this play into our search for what's true about us? What does this have to do with our identity? I want to show you. I wanna show you how an actual king of Israel wrestled with Genesis 1, with his search for who and what and why we are. And I love that scripture does this. If you wanna understand Genesis 1, don't go to mythology and don't go to science. Go first to other scripture. (laughs) We heard this in our call to worship. If you have a Bible out, if you don't, grab one of the Bibles from the pew. Um, If there's not enough, just just follow along with your neighbor. Don't open it yet. We're gonna try something. Everybody have a Bible? Everybody that can have a Bible? Okay, so we're gonna open to Psalm 8, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna see if anybody opens exactly to Psalm 8. So when I count to three, I want you to open the Bibles at the same time, just open to the middle, all right? And we're gonna see if somebody actually opens right to Psalm 8. Are you ready? Are you with me? One, two, three. If you open it, no, Carl, doesn't work, the phone doesn't work, you gotta open an actual Bible. Okay, did anybody open exactly to Psalm 8 in a physical Bible? No? Do you know what 9.30 somebody did? One of our high school kids did. And then somebody else opened to Psalm 10. They thought they got closest, but they didn't. Okay, there was no point in that. There is no prize. I just wanted to get you there. <laughs> but, I do, but I do want you to look at the text because I want you to see something about it. So uh, this is Psalm 8. King David writes, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger, 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and you've crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the work of your hands. You've put everything under their feet. And then in verse seven and eight, he'd list all the things that are under our feet. And then in verse nine, everybody say it together. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This Psalm is like a sandwich. (laughs) It's enclosed in praise beginning in verse one and then ending in verse nine, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what holds this psalm together. But look at what's in the middle. Like the literal center of the psalm, verses four through six, what is mankind? Why do you care? You've made them rulers over the work of your hands. You put everything under their feet. It's clear from the heart of this psalm, there's a question, why do you care about us? And why did you give us this role? This is a psalm that puts God in his rightful place on the throne of all creation, and it puts us in ours. It's a creation hymn that centers on the place of humans in the midst of God's creation, and the place and the purpose that we fill, it sounds a little surprising. So let me show you quickly what this has to say about bearing God's image. And then we're gonna work through the implications of all this over the next couple weeks. Like I said, today, I know there's a lot of information. Um, But first, to bear an image of something, are you the original if you bear its image? No, you're bearing the image of an original. But to bear an image, that's the way the original is known and understood. And there's only one way that God has imaged himself in all creation, only one way, and that's through us. Y'all, this is why idolatry, specifically in the Old Testament, making an idol or an engraved image out of any created substance, it's forbidden for Israel and honestly for us. Because the God of Israel, our God, he doesn't need an idol of wood or stone or metal to represent himself to us. He has already made his own image and he's put his image here on earth. It's us. And through us, he intends to be known. The second point is that it's absolutely clear from both Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 that being made in God's image is first and foremost, it's not about what we look like. Being made in God's image is first and foremost about the part that we play in the midst of God's creation. It's about the work we do. Both of these passages use strong words to describe who we are and what we are to do, to describe why we're here. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may what? Rule. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over. And then Genesis 1 goes on to list all the things that we rule over. Other translations will use the word dominion, have dominion instead of rule. Y'all, these are strong words and we shouldn't minimize them. Because either way, whatever English word you choose to use, 
Y'all, it means that we were created to be kings. Humanity in the image of God given to creation to serve as its king. And just to clarify really quick, in the image of God, he created them male and female. I'm not gonna get into gender issues today. I'm just using the word kings to apply to both. Okay, fair enough? What this tells us is that we are not God. We are not God. But as his image, we are here to rule on his behalf. And I think there's a reason that this story is set in a garden. It's a good image. You wanna tell humans they're free to rule, let's make them gardeners first. (laughs) Right? Caretakers. Stewards of everything that's precious and belongs to God. You see, the scripture is telling us exactly how we are to rule. Remember what I said earlier, God brought all things to existence not through brute force. There was no struggle. He He doesn't say there must be. What does he say? Let there be. That tells us right off the bat, God's rule and dominion is not about force. We are not given permission to do whatever we wanna do and to use and abuse whatever we wanna use and abuse. God's rule and dominion is a responsibility that gives permission and empowers creation to become all that God intended. Part of creation's purpose is to provide for us. But our purpose is to serve creation in return. This is what we are and why we're here. We are here to rule as benevolent shepherd kings. Creatures who rule and subdue through careful stewardship of God's prize. We are gifts given to creation for the benefit of all creation. Bearing the image of God means that we are God's counterpart on earth. And that is actually a really good way to define the Hebrew word for image, the word zelem. You can say image, you could also say that we are God's counterpart here on earth. Do you feel the weight of that responsibility? How heavy that commission is. That's why King David wrote, who are we that you're mindful of us, that you care for us? And then in verse six, you've made us rulers over the work of your hands. You've put everything under their feet. I almost imagine David writing this saying, "Um, do you realize you did that? (laughs) Like, why did you do that, God? David is asking this question in the psalm because he knows humanness all too well. So do we. Our role in creation is as surprising to him as it is to us because David knows his own proclivity. proclivity. As an actual king, he knows his own temptation to be less than faithful, to be less than gracious, to believe that the only way to rule the world is through the world's understanding of power and authority. I had a professor, John Goldengay, and he wrestled with this too, like King David, he wrote this. He says, it's extraordinary that God paid attention to humanity and gave us a power in the world that is almost God-like. God might even seem to have been rather irresponsible in giving humanity a role to play in the created world. Yet. (laughs) 
It's a consistent pattern of God's work in the world that God takes risks in delegating responsibility and power to people that he created and called to work as his agents, even though they may be inclined to abuse his power. The good news is that the Psalms remind us that God's majesty and might will finally have their way. God takes risks, but he is committed to leading creation to its destiny. The work that we do in the world and the way that we do that work, y'all, it matters. And again, whatever that is, from children until our final day, we are working, we are producing, we are putting something into the world. What that work is, it matters more than matters. It's a part of what it means for us to be an image bearer of God. Now, the reality is that image in us is broken. So as we do this work, we're gonna struggle. We'll often find our work tedious. We may look for shortcuts. We may be tempted to act with selfish ambition. We may focus on pursuing personal profit and promotion rather than exercising our rule and authority in ways that are pleasing to God and in line with his plan for us and all creation. That's the reality we live in. But in Christ, that broken image in us is being restored. And y'all, I am convinced that our work can be both a reminder of and the means by which God continues to shape and mold people who would be tyrants. It's how he molds us into shepherd kings. We do not earn salvation or the restoration of that image by the work we do. But our salvation and the restoration that we have received, that's what frees us to work and to rule as God's true counterpart here on earth, even now. I'm convinced that understanding who we are, that we're known, loved, and worth dying for, but also what we are and why we are here, understanding these things is fundamental to forming an identity that reflects out into the world the image of the creator of the world. And the work that we do, the way that we rule and exercise that power and authority, it's a testimony to who God is. Our work is a testimony to who we are, to what we are, to why we were created. To be an image bearer means to rule and have dominion over creation as shepherd kings, to be loving caretakers, stewards of somebody else's stuff. But here's the deal. When we actually do it, when we live and work in accordance with his will and not our own, y'all, that's worship. True rule and dominion is an act of worship. And this is really important and I'm wrapping up, I promise, but another scholar said this. I want you to hear what he said. He said, human dominion in the body of Psalm 8. Remember, the meat of the sandwich, right? And the praise of God at the edges that hold it together, all of these must be held together because an attitude that only sees life as praising God is not what the Psalm imagines. But to use human power without praising God is to exploit creation and it corrupts the hope of the psalm. And then he says this, it is not naive to say that the first step in addressing any crisis in the creation is to start by praising God. Because praising God is that act of worship 
and mode of existence that reminds us that we are not free to do whatever our science and technology enables us to do. He's saying worship without exercising power and authority that God has given us or exercising that power and authority without worship. Both of those undermine the meaning of the psalm and it undermines God's design for us. Really quickly, there's a, there's a thing in our culture that, that for some sounds really good. And I know a, a lot of younger generation, they, they buy into this. And it's, uh, you hear it when there's a tragedy. Um, there's always tragedies, but one of the terrible tragedies that our country needs to confront, you may hear somebody say, you can keep your thoughts and prayers. Have y'all heard people say that? Like we have a tendency to respond that we'll be praying and we should, but we, but we have started to hear this, you can keep your thoughts and prayers, we want action. I get the sentiment, but the Psalms are teaching us that to act outside of prayer, to act in a way that's not wrapped in prayer and praise will just lead to further destruction. But to just pray and praise without being willing to move and act, that is also a perversion of God's intention for creation. This idea that our work leads to worship, y'all, this this means that that we're not only kings, (laughs) that we are worshipers leading all creation in a fantastic chorus in the midst of a garden temple. We're not only kings, we're also priests. We are the image of God revealing to all creation the majesty and glory of God, making God known and bringing the world into a relationship with the one who made it and who knows it well. That's the reason that we're framing this entire series around three psalms. The first four weeks, Psalm 139, and now the second four weeks, Psalm 8, because these are psalms written by a shepherd king who's reminding us of who we are. You were created to be both a priest and a king given to creation as a gift, a caretaker, a steward, a shepherd who leads and rules through sacrifice and who brings creation to the throne of God. And I need to wrap up. Um, I told the 930 service, a lot of this is part of the theology chapter of my dissertation. So you're actually lucky you're getting out of here at all today. (laughs) Um, But there are a million implications for this. Um, We're gonna work through them over the weeks to come, but really quickly as we finish, I I do want you to just wrestle with a couple questions. And I'm gonna ask them to all of us, wrestle with these questions, and we'll talk about this more next week, but how are you bearing God's image in the world? How is the image of God evident in your life? How are you exercising the responsibility, the power, and the authority that God has given you? How are you doing that in your relationships? How are you doing that in your working or your retired life? How are you doing that at home? How are you doing it in the community? What does this tell us about the way that we as a community engage with the world around us politically? Are image bearers people who force things as we will them to be? Or are we called to speak, let there be? and then work to shape and mold the world as God wills it? Are you trusting in the way of the world to accomplish your your responsibilities? The way of the world is telling you that the one who rules is to be served. 
Or are you trusting the way of Jesus Christ? The shepherd king, the priestly king who laid down his life for his sheep. Are you listening to the voice that says the one who rules is to be served? Or are you listening to Jesus whose life, death, and resurrection tells a better truth? That the one who rules is the one who serves. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it is humbling when we have these conversations, when we really consider, um, like King David, knowing our, ourselves really well, when we consider that you would put us in charge of almost anything. Yet when we think about it, you've given us creativity, you've given us smart brains, you've given us entrepreneurial spirits, you've given us these gifts. Now God, we pray that we would use them to accomplish your will, not our own. That our activity would be wrapped in praise. That it would guide us to real work for the benefit of all creation and for the glory of your name. We pray that you would show us that we have the power and the strength to do this. Guide us back here each week so we can remember who we do this work for. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said.